you. Good afternoon. I'm Fiona Mountford, theatre critic of the Evening Standard, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you here for this first Anthony and Cleopatra platform. My guest tonight is well known to all of us. As an associate director here at the National, he has directed Twelfth Night, Sunset at the Villa Thalia, The Bow Stratagem, Man and Superman, and Strange Interlude. His work elsewhere encompasses some of the country's leading theatres, including the RSC, the Royal Court, and the Bristol Old Vic. He is, of course, Simon Godwin. Welcome. <laughs> Simon. When this production was first mooted by Rufus Norris or Ray Fiennes or whoever it was, what was your initial reaction? Was it along the lines of, oh, blimey, we really struggled through Anthony and Cleopatra for A-level, or that's the play I've been waiting to get stuck into? Well, yes, I, uh, I had read the play and studied the play at A-level. Um, fortunately, um, I really enjoyed it. Um, so it has stayed with me as a text that I was entertained and intrigued and enlivened by. But the production itself came about through uh, my relationship with Rafe, because um, I had directed Man and Superman with Rafe in the Littleton, and that had been a great experience. And at the end of that, he and I sat down and talked about what we might do together as the next project. And we actually read a series of plays out loud at the studio. And Rafe had seen the Peter Hall production on this same stage with Anthony Hopkins and Judy Dench and it had made a big impression on him. And so when we read Anthony Lee and Cleopatra out loud, all the memories, I think, of that production and of Anthony Hopkins' performance came back to him. And at the end of the reading, uh, Rafe said, that's the part that I'd like to do next here. And that was a very happy congruence between me feeling extremely excited, if I'll be trepidatious uh, about approaching the play, but very excited to do it uh, as the initial relationship with Rafe. And then, of course, we realized that we needed our Cleopatra. And um, that was when we went and met Sophie, saw her work in The Goat in the uh, West End. Okay, yes. And uh, loved her in that. Yes. And so I invited her and asked whether she'd like to play Cleopatra with it. And fortunately, she said yes. Well, the, the casting it is absolutely magnificent, as those of us who've seen it already will know. So you, that's how Rafe and Sophie came to be involved. What about the rest of the cast? Because what a marked feature of this production is it drips with quality throughout the cast. Every role is so well done. How did you go about casting the other roles? Well, I think when you work on a play which has a pair at the helm rather than an individual, already you're invited to think of that play as being a much more of an ensemble piece. Yeah. And there are so many great parts in Anthony and Cleopatra, and it seemed crucial that each part carry its weight, that each part tell its bit of the story. So it was a much more, it was a lengthier casting process than I was used to. And the National Theatre's casting department is second to none. And there's a real determination to not stop until you find the right person. And that just means going on as long as you need. And it was a very long process, but it's meant that I think that we have great strength in depth. Yeah. So how, give it, I, I, I don't know what that would, how long did the casting take them from? Um, I think it took between mm, around, well, around eight months. Eight months, Which is not okay. to say that necessarily we're, we're all doing it every day, but there were stretches where we would yeah. meet more people and then we'd stop and then new lists would appear and then I'd go and see someone in the play and then we'd have a, okay. another pause. And um, so yes, it was, it, was, it was long. And were Rafe and Sophie involved in any of that or was that, that was you and your associate director? Um, yes, it was very important for Rafe that his relationship with Eros, um, ah, yes. who 
there's a various um, there's quite a lot of textual adjustments in the play, which for those of you that know the play very well, you'll notice, and for those of you who know the play less well, in a way I hope that you don't notice, because <laughs> yes. I think the successful edit is the invisible one. But um, the character of Eros, I've extended and enlarged. Yes. But crucially, there's a very keen, important scene between Antony and Eros in the second half. So it felt like whoever played that role needed to have a very special relationship with yeah. Anthony. Sure. And it was brilliant to be able to say to Rafe, well, rather than me just doing it and showing you your Eros on day <coughs> one, <coughs> yes. um, come along and meet three people that I think are all really good yes. and discover who you get on really most well with. Sure. So that was a very nice luxury. Sure. So eight, eight months mm. to put that cast together. Mm. Well, so there's a lot we're going to talk about in the production, but just briefly, could you tell us what was your overriding aim for the production? Hmm. I think that this, the play is a very unusual genre because many of you will be in the audience who are watching it tonight expecting to see uh, a Romeo and Juliet type story. But it's not actually a conventional love story in that there's a huge amount of other things in the play as well. Political espionage, um, Roman history, um, Shakespeare's reworking of the history. So there are layers of it, which means it's never quite what you think it's going to be. And in the past, when I've seen productions of it, I found the genre a little bit confusing, I suppose, a little bit jagged, a little bit unsatisfactory. So the ch my aim was to make an evening that felt coherent, yeah. that felt that the world was modern without being so contemporary that it brings you out of the action. Yeah and that the characters were all talking to each other and they were all part of this one tragic arc, which in the end, through its shared, I hope, consistency or mm, coherence, means that you really do travel from A to B in a satisfactory way rather than in a jagged or unsatisfactory way. Yes, because seeing, so seeing this production, which I absolutely adored, made me realise how many substandard productions of this play I've been forced to endure. It's a lot. It is notoriously tricky and hard to get right. So why do you think it is so tricky among Shakespeare's plays? Because it, it's recognised as such. Well, I think because um, Shakespeare read his history book, uh, the Plutarch account of the real events. And if you read the Plutarch, you see, OK, here's the source material. And then you see Shakespeare improving on the history and changing the history, yet also being bound by the history. So there are plot journeys in the story which if he was writing the play from scratch he probably wouldn't have necessarily observed but he's got part of him which does want to remain faithful to the history and real life events are not as satisfying as fictional ones mm -hmm. so there's that historical loyalty and also there is this love story which is about two people who are undergoing a terror of aging and it's their love-hate relationship that's really at the source of the evening. And that makes sometimes a very uncomfortable viewing because there aren't scenes of tenderness, um, uh, familiarity, uh, peacefulness. There's one very brief scene at the beginning, but that's the only scene in the play they have alone. The first few lines. And then it's constantly a relationship lived in the glare of the public spotlight, which means that relationship is fraught, is uh, panicky, is restless, and ultimately self-destructive. And piloting through all of those things in a way that's actually a pleasure to watch <laughs> yes. rather than um, an endurance test <laughs> is, is, is hard. <laughs> yes. Well, one of the many achievements, I think, 
is that it, your production does so skillfully blend the political scenes with the personal and makes them equally compelling. And too many productions don't manage this. And I think turn the politics in particular into a bit of a trudge and we're just, oh, I've got to get through Rome now. We really want to be back in Egypt. But you made the politics seem so fresh minted. And I, on press night, I was leaning forward. I knew what was going to happen, but I was absolutely gripped. How did you, how did you manage that? How did you make it so fresh? Well, I think, first of all, culturally right now, we are in a time when politics and the personal have never felt as mixed and as overlapping and as unbounded as they are today. So in that respect, the play very much speaks to a situation that we're all in. Good. Uh, and there's an extraordinary uh, section when, um, well, this whole question of reputation and male pride, and uh, this term honour, is very intrinsic to the narrative. So when, for example, John McCain died and Trump didn't pay him sufficient respect, and this became a debate, it felt very much like a scene from the play. That, uh, and indeed, the play is partly charting a sort of collapse of masculinity, yeah. uh, what it means to be an ageing leader, an ageing soldier, an ageing ruler in the way that Anthony is, seems oddly prescient to this moment of change that we're in now. In terms of process, how do I make it fresh? Well, we spend the first week of rehearsals putting every single line of the play into our own words. Because it seems to me that unless you know exactly what you're saying, you've got no chance of making yourself clear to your fellow actor or, crucially, to your audience. We also did quite unusual things, like on the first Saturday of the rehearsals, we all went to a military training camp, or at least the soldiers did, uh, in Norfolk for a day, because I was bored of seeing people playing soldiers, in, not least in my own productions, uh, who, who looked nowhere, didn't look at all like soldiers and didn't know how to handle weapons or didn't know how to march or to stand like a soldier. So we did exercises like that to, in a way, say we don't need to deliver the cliches. There's a more specific way of approaching the play. And also, um, a new thing that I introduced when I directed Twelfth Night here was to do acrobatics uh, every week, uh, which is also, um, in a way, a great preparation for being on this stage because it's such a gutsy, frightening thing to get up here in front of a thousand people and go through those speeches and open your heart and, in a way, not think, but just jump. And so anything that you can do in rehearsals to prepare the actors to overcome the terror of performance wow. feels useful. So I did put them through their paces in all sorts of ways. Goodness, okay, acrobatics, so once mm. a week, just yeah. w very good. <laughs> wow, it's, it's- I won't um, be doing any uh, demonstrations. <laughs> do a few cartwheels across there. Uh, <laughs> the design mm. is ravishing. It's opulent and luxurious and custom cannot stale its infinite variety and you must have had to raid the Nationals piggy bank to fund it. Could you tell us about the design choices that you and designer Hildegard Beckler made um, and how closely did you collaborate and how much in advance of rehearsals starting did you start working on it together? Because, well, we're not going to give you any spoilers, but this is, there's a lot of other design that you will see throughout the evening. I think that I've so much realised as I've done more directing that preparation is everything. So when I start on a project, and this was actually to do with the when I started to work at the Royal Court, there's a whole methodology that wherever your play is set, go there. Whoever it's about, meet those people. Get to know the truth of your situation, however much you then transpose it. So when I decided to do it, the first thing I did was to go to Egypt. Because it, I knew I wanted to do a modern dress production, 
And actually, going back to your question about freshness, I always think it's a very helpful exercise to say, if this play were set now with characters that we all know now, who, who would be in it or what would it be about? So the thing, and it's always very reductive to begin with it, but I find it a helpful start. So as I thought about that, I thought, well, maybe it is like Mike Pence going to <laughs> Syria and meeting a Syrian queen and falling in love with her, and then the Americans deciding to invade Syria, only to find Mike Pence at the top of the Syrian forces. Uh, he loses, decides to kill himself, and of course the Syrian princess is so in love with him that she follows suit and also uh, kills herself. So suddenly this idea of superpowers colliding and the East and West meeting begins to get the cogs turning. Then I went to Egypt, and what I realized was when I was in Egypt is that the contemporary Egypt is nothing like Shakespeare's Egypt, and it's nothing like the historical Egypt. So suddenly you have three layers. The original Shakespeare, who'd never been to Egypt and was writing in, really in a fantasy, and Egypt now. And I realized that if I tried to adhere to any one of those three things, I would fall down. That I, what I had to do was create a world which echoed all three in some pleasing, harmonious, provocative way. So that led me to the design, which is based on a sort of heightened present but consciously does not use things like mobile phones. Right. So that, yes, there is technology, but we try to keep it in check so that the temptations of getting overwhelmed by modernity. And also there is water, there is fire, and yes, we'll sure come to it, there is a real snake. So the notion that there is reality and poetry feels, I hope, serving the epic sweep of the play. And what Hildegard is brilliant at, and I remember seeing when I was 15, her production of a lecture with Fiona Shaw at the Riverside Studios, also with water, which I still remember, is that she's always had this incredible gift for the visceral. Yes. The, um, the objects that feel real yes. and the big gestures. She's not frightened of being bold. And on this huge amphitheater of a stage, <laughs> yes. you have to be bold. You can't run away from it. No. And actually, I've discovered over the productions that I've done here, the bolder I am, the more fun it is. Okay. So how far in advance of you starting rehearsals did, did Hildegard show you the designs and you say yes or that wasn't quite what I was... How, how long ago did that process start? Well, that's also a very long process because I go to her studio a lot in North London and yeah. we start just with a, um, a scale model of the empty theater and you go, well, what do we, what's the, what do we need? Uh, what's, the, what's the minimum that you can start with? And I had remembered that when Peter Hall had directed it here, although I didn't see the production, but reading about it, he'd very much stressed the need, and I think it's right, that in Shakespeare, it's wonderful, the closer you can get the last line of a scene to the first scene of the next scene. Okay. The mm -hmm. closer they can be, the better. Yes. Because, of course, he wrote his plays with no set at all. Yes. And he wrote for a world in which you walk on and... It's no scene changes, yes. it's no scenery. You just are able to pass the baton so fast. Mm -hmm. And it seems to be the case that whenever we've managed it to go yeah. last line, first line, the energy yeah. of the audience lifts. Yes. So we were determined that whatever, we, whatever language yeah, we came up sure. with could serve the momentum of the evening as much as we possibly could. And yes. so Hildegard starts and she thinks about maybe it's a, an arch that turns and then that becomes a wall and then you, uh, Mm, then the, a wall and then other parts of course you realize we can take up from below and yeah. so you try and work as many dimensions as you it's can. It's very but fluid it's a notably fluid production mm. there's not a sense of because it is a big stage and there's not a sense of we're going to spend the next minute watching people walk on and off it's yeah. it all s flows doesn't the, it? The other thing to point out I don't know whether you can see it but what I think Hildegard has done very skillfully is that um, 
you, I'm not sure, yes, you can see in the dark very gently that what we've, this is Hildegard's idea, is we've actually built a black proscenium arch that travels in a kind of diagonal from there to there. You'll perhaps see it as it goes on through the evening. But what this means is that this, one of the, I think the great challenges with the stage is the extraordinary height of it, that uh, this human being can sort of disappear. But by making this, when the play at least begins, you'll discover that you're looking through a little bit of a kind of letterbox. Uh, okay. And I think that's made the action a lot easier to manage on the stage yes. and the sense of intimacy Because possible. with this current set here, it, it makes the stage, I think, seem a lot smaller than it actually is, because yeah. it is a huge stage. It's big and complicated, and there's a revolve as well to contend with, which is expertly used. So the height, okay, that's a challenge. What other mm. challenges mm. does this particular stage throw? Height, losing actors sort of in the very um, high height. Well, the other thing I suppose is that it's a very unusual that um, to have an audience so far to the sides. And you can see that when we first come into the theatre and do our scenes, we tend to, a lot of the scenes happen like this, because you've been used to being in the rehearsal room when the audience have just been in front. So then the question is, how do I do a scene playing with Fiona, whereby I, I'm talking to Fiona via here, so they can see my face. So how do you somehow include them without that solution? And then that becomes a series of diagonals, because if I stand here, I can talk to Fiona, but there can be access to me here. Yes. But then occasionally I always have to think, oh, what shall I say to Fiona next? Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Just so, they so it's trying to make all of these techniques yes. uh, in a way that you don't notice. Uh, because as soon as you do think, oh, I think that actor is just trying to uh, reference over here, we've probably failed. <laughs> you, you mentioned this, and this is a question I know everyone's longing to ask, so let's cut to the chase. Tell us about the snakes. <laughs> well, it's amazing to me just how interested people are in animals on the stage. <laughs> I mean, wow. Um, it, I don't think I've done so many interviews in my life about... Uh, so it seems... That, I'm sure there are some Shakespearean experts in the audience who will tell me otherwise, but I think the two animals in Shakespeare are the dog in The Two Gentlemen of Verona and the snake in Antony and Cleopatra. So both of which you've now ticked off. I've now ticked yeah, off. So when I did The Two Gentlemen of Verona at Stratford, the dog indeed had not only a dressing room, but in a large trailer, <laughs> uh, which was actually outside the stage door. So every time I walked in, I was, we were all reminded of a stage anxiety to go, my God, what do we, what do we ever do to, to deserve this? And equally, the snakes, we have four of them. They have their own dressing room. Um, they're extremely carefully cared for. They arrived about two weeks before the opening night just so they got over their nerves. Um, I, I think there's I mean, something are they pleasant? Do they sort of, in, you know, or they deign to sort of talk to you or are they just too grand for this? They're pretty grand because they okay. don't, they, and, and after a show they have a three days off um, <laughs> to sort of shed their skin or generally calm down. So it, they are a big, big, uh, exciting presence. Um, when did you decide to have hmm. real snakes and not fake snakes? Well, I'd seen the production, uh, I had seen productions with rubber snakes and I had always found that disappointing yeah. because however much you uh, handle a snake to try and suggest your rubber snake is real, it's, a, it's really hard to achieve uh, uh, as much as I've seen. So, and Peter Hall had a real snake when he did it with Judy Dench and Tony Hopkins and there are still show reports about that snake actually one of them escaping. Oh my and, gosh. And then the other one, um, being locked in a box and the security guard having gone to the roof and hadn't got the key and they couldn't get the second one out of the bottle. Blah, blah, blah. So, I mean, I think as soon as snakes arrive, there's always going to be attendant stories and challenges. Yes. But uh, I thought, well, if Peter Hall did it, then we should. Yes. And because we've been using fire and water and as much blood and truthfulness as we yes. could find, it felt important to end with something And when you said to, to Sophie, uh, there is going to be a real snake, was she quite phlegmatic about this or did she have some kind of long-held phobia of snakes you had to talk her out of? I mean, hugely 
we're hugely lucky that she didn't. Yes. Alma was actually brilliant yes. at going, fine, I just treat it like another actor. And every night, she's probably doing it as, as I'm talking, she spends time with the snake oh that she's going to be getting out of the basket this evening. So the snake is sort of fine with her and she's fine with the snake. Gosh. And yeah, so it's a very, I mean, it's a, but funnily enough, it does become a very serious undertaking. Are there equity rules governing well, snakes? Absolutely, are of there's lots and lots of regulations. So, okay. um, but even to the feeling of, and of course what's amazing about Shakespeare is that he even has words addressed to the snake. Yeah. Cleopatra says, I think, uh, be angry. And uh, uh, I wish that, um, anyway, but yes, that the, the, the text to the snake, so Shakespeare himself wants the snake to feel part of the company, yeah, which sure. is his generosity to a fault. <laughs> <laughs> if you could have had Shakespeare in the rehearsal room with you, what would you like to have asked? I think it's something about how to... Hyperbole is a big part of the evening. These are huge characters using very, very big terms to describe how they feel and how they think about the world and what the world might think about them. And sometimes the hyperbole was a challenge to know how to present it because when you're dealing with language that big, it can feel quite overwhelming. How do you match the language? At one moment, Inababa says Antony is trying to outstare the lightning. And sometimes with the hyperbole, if you take it on, you can get drawn into almost trying to be as big as the language. So I would have asked Shakespeare about how did he feel he wanted that hyperbole to be treated? Was it that he wanted the operatic? Or did he want us to kind of undercut it? Or was there moments of both? Or was this simply how these people talk normally? So the contours of emotion and language I would have asked him about. And I also would have asked him about the plotting, which has taken me a tremendously long time to figure out what what's going on in the play. Because the three battles in the second half, they are really dense. And I think they're still a little bit dense, I'm afraid. But um, I've really, really spent a long time trying to figure out, a, even just working out, oh, the first battle is a sea battle. Yes. The second battle is a land <laughs> battle. And the third battle isn't a battle at all. <laughs> And um, you would have thought, well, that would have been obvious from the beginning, but actually there's so many codes and obfuscations in the language yes. that that's taken me a long time to decipher. And you, I think you were saying you've, you've edited it slightly because it mm. run, you've taken about 45 minutes Yeah, out. I mean, some people that's have said, oh, oh, Simon Godwin, he doesn't cut his plays and that's why they're long. And well, ladies and gentlemen, I mean, <laughs> had I given you the uncut text, we would have been down at around quarter past, half past 11. <laughs> so um, yes, the last scene, for example, has a, and a whole other character in it, Soloikos, the treasurer. Yes. Or there's a very, very long routine with the clown making amusing snake jokes <laughs> um, for a healthy 25 minutes in the original. Uh, <laughs> and I apologize to the actress playing the soothsayer because as you'll see, I think she only has two and a half lines now. So we have cut it. Um, it's, an, it's an interesting because it is, but I think Shakespeare, I feel, wanted it to be a long play. He felt it was a huge story, and I suppose a little bit like Dickens or Bleak House or big, long pieces of art, that's very much what the creator wanted. And so I feel there is something in that hugeness. So when it finishes, you feel, I've really traveled with these characters. And we started at seven, and we're down by 10.30, and there are a lot of people have died. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, lives are lost on the stage. Yes. And there's something about the vastness of that and yes. just how shattered the actors are by the end. Because you really, it's not uh, the Royal Court upstairs an hour and 10 minutes with some people in the living room talking about, <laughs> yes. you know, what it's like to 
go to party. I'm just thinking <laughs> yes. of plays I've directed there. Or, you know. <laughs> yes. But it's, 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 it is in every sense huge. But it, it's a heft. It's a tragic heft and grandeur. And your production earns that. And I think possibly that back to the question about why so many productions don't succeed. I think it is long and a lot does happen and a lot of people do die, but they don't always earn the grandeur. And this production does. And that's why I think it's so satisfying. So. The reviews have rightly been glowing. Um, do you read reviews? And if so, do you take them to heart? Um, I love to be the kind of cool customer that would say, oh, never read reviews. And no, I don't care. Uh, uh, I do read them. OK. The next um, morning, are you waiting for mm, them? I think it's inevitable. Okay. I mean, mm -hmm. as it's the hardest part of the job right. to know. Imagine, everybody, if you were making something and the following morning you knew that it would then be publicly judged. It's very, very, it's very frightening. And the whole preview period, you're second guessing basically about how it's going to go down. So you're grabbing audience members or you're trying to avoid audience members who you feel might give you too much feedback or you're seeking out some trusted colleagues just all the time trying to evaluate about how the story is landing. And sometimes you do a play and you think, I'm so proud of it, it's landed brilliantly. And then it's not enjoyed by the critics and you kind of go, ooh. And sometimes you do a play which you don't feel very confident about and the critical community get behind it. Um, so it's very exposing. And, but I think it's hard as a director not to read them because you are responsible. And I think it's quite good for actors to have their own view about them. But I think as the leader, you need to be well informed. Do you take on board any, I mean, do you, do, you, do you, in a practical sense, do you ever take it on board and go back to the company and, or is it just something, is it a note for the future, something to self to sort of mull on and mm, reflect I, on? It's interesting because I work so closely with the company and then on press night, it's goodbye. Yeah. So I think they, it would be very destabilizing if I'd said goodbye on press night and the following <laughs> day. Um, I've got some ideas <laughs> about the, um, um, I think they know where that would come from. That's not to say that I watch the play every two weeks or so okay. and keep an eye on it and give encouragement and small details and hopefully things that can continue to help it grow. But I think taking on the agenda of the press and, and acting on it, it would be hard. But, sure. I think, but having said that, I learn a lot and I hope that I do try and put it the, into practice in the next show. <laughs> You've directed all sorts of shows at the National now, so tell us, give us the answer. What's harder to direct, comedy or tragedy? Um, I think that the rhythm of tragedy is very hard because I think that how to deliver tragedy at the level which is moving without being heavy is, is an amazingly difficult endeavor. Because at any moment, if a, even a moment outstays its welcome and you move from being gripped to slightly distanced, the tragic sensation is mitigated. Whereas comedy has a momentousness of its own that once you've got it, it's going to carry you through. And I, so, so yes, I would say the tragic arc it's a brilliant and amazing thing to, to try and achieve, but it's properly challenging. Sure. Share with us one thing, anything, but one thing that you will take from this production that you've learned from doing this production. I think it's this feeling that people are always trying to move away from pain. Okay. And that even things that... M 
even characters who are speaking about how much pain they're in are speaking about it to be in less pain. That Shakespeare doesn't write self-pity, he writes people trying to claw themselves out of suffering. Even if the clawing out of suffering makes you feel worse, it's through trying to feel better. And that once we get into stasis of somebody simply complaining or feeling bad about themselves, self-pity, these are small things, and the energy goes in. But someone trying to find a solution is what's moving. It's okay. the heroism of trying to find the light. Yes. That I think that's where tragedy lives, not in giving in to the dark. Sure. Okay. What, what <laughs> Shakespeare play that you haven't so far directed have you got a burning urge to tackle? Well, I think that we're often affected by those plays that have touched us deeply in our pasts. So, yeah. like Rafe, being so moved by the Anthony Cleopatra that he saw here. Yes. For me, I remember seeing Robert Stevens play King Lear okay. at Stratford shortly before he died. And it was a very moving performance because there was somebody that looked a bit like Father Christmas <laughs> with his yes. big beard and his incredible uh, spirit, really not playing him as a, bar, you know, as a baddie yes. or as a mean-spirited man, but a man who had made a series of bad choices through trying to make good choices. And so I remember being very moved in the theatre. And the, really the first time I'd had that tragic sensation of crying in the face of something much more cosmic and bigger than I'd seen in the theatre before, which is a roundabout way of saying that I'd absolutely love to direct King Lear one day. Um, and that's the mark, because to go back to that play and try and bring a sense of tragic experience to it um, would be a wonderful circle to and have traced. And now you've traced. cracked finding the rhythms and keeping the momentum of tragedy. Well, I'm not sure I cracked well, it, but I'm certainly, certainly I'm on the way. <laughs> well, following on from Shakespeare plays you'd like to direct, you're imminently off to America for further Shakespearean adventures. Could mm. you tell us a little something about that? Well, I wanted to run a theatre for a long time, and I've been the deputy in one way or another to Rupert Gould at Northampton. Yes and then to Tom Morris at Bristol, then to Dominic Kirk at the Royal Court, and now part of Rufus's executive, as it were, associate team here. So I've had the privilege to watch a lot of leaders at work and, and have thought, how I, well, how would I do that? And I suppose because as a director, you're leading a company every day, yes. m the greatest artist directors are the ones that extend the same energy to the organization that they have in the rehearsal room. So when the Shakespeare Theatre Company approached me about potentially applying to or speaking to them about taking over from Michael Kahn, this is in Washington, in Washington who yes. founded the theatre 33 years ago and has been in charge from its inception, was retiring um, and they wanted someone to take over, I thought, well, okay, <laughs> it's a theatre with a great track record. They, classics is at their heart and classics is the place that I enjoy most directing. Um, yes, it's in America. Um, <laughs> which I'm, you know, it's not my, uh, it's, it's not my country, and yet, and yet, of course, theatre is always about the universal. Yes. And when I do a play in any theatre, you're always looking to bring the most diverse and myriad group of tastes into agreement to all be held together, whether that's in America or Japan or England. So I start, I go there in a year, and um, I'm daunted but very excited. We're going to have to wrap things up. So all that remains for me to do is to thank you all very much for coming and, of course, to thank our guest, Simon Godwin. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for coming. Good. I have to go now.